continuing those relationships uh, in showing the love of Christ to them. We're going to continue, Lord willing, to um, create a new Circle of Care initiative uh, to potentially come around uh, Ukrainian refugees. So if this is something you're interested in, you can follow up with that right on the website. Hans, who you saw in the video, he's going to be uh, coordinating that ministry. So if you are interested, make sure you reach out to him. This year, our faith promise is going to be focused on supporting our partner ministry in Rea, Ukraine, uh, which I'll talk more about that in a moment, to build infrastructure, make improvements as they continue to work, actually, with refugees that are fleeing of the surrounding areas of Ukraine um, and coming to Rea because it's safer. And so they have new opportunities that are showing up right on their doorstep uh, as well. So our faith promise goal is $25,000 that we're looking to raise. Uh, please consider that. You can go on the website again to find out more about that. Now, speaking of Ukraine, our second practice of Missions Month is inviting one of our missionary partners to join us for this month to learn from them, to be encouraged by them, to bless them as they go back to their, their mission uh, at the end of this month. We're so grateful to have Valak and Natasha Groshetsky, and they are here with their six children. Can you guys all stand up? <clears throat> um, now, we have a long, you guys can be seated. We have a very long history at this church with, with this family. You know, Valak, actually, in the days of his youth, 1998, on a missions trip from this church, uh, we, we met him um, and formed a relationship. A couple of years later, he ended up coming here um, to, to be an intern in our student ministry. Um, and then, since then, we've just continued this partnership. It's like a sister church for us for over 20 years. And so the ministry of, of the Grushetsky family in Ukraine uh, primarily happens through the ministry of the local church in Rea. Um, from there, out into the community to serve and meet local needs, work with students and, and youth, particularly those that have disabilities as well. So you'll have an opportunity throughout this month to get to meet them, uh, spend some time with them. Valak is going to be preaching next week. On the 19th, he'll be downstairs for Christian Ed leading that ministry as well. He'll be visiting, they'll, they'll be visiting Awana student ministry as well. So lots of opportunities throughout the month. The third practice of Missions Month is our missions dinner, which by the way is sold out. 300 of you signed up, so that's all we can take. Um, but you can wait list because if the people are sick or they, you know, they, they, flake out for one reason or another, you can get it, okay? So you can still sign up. You will be on, a, uh, you will be, uh, on the wait list, okay? That missions dinner is really focused on getting a literal taste of Ukraine. Uh, so you will taste the Ukrainian feast and uh, also Q&A time with uh, Valak and Natasha about life and ministry in Ukraine, what the last couple of years, excuse me, have been like as well. The fourth and final practice of Missions Month is really where we end here, which is our sermon series, which is focused on personal missions engagement. Now, I say personal missions engagement because sometimes in Christianity, we can sort of get locked in the box of thinking about missions, right? We think about missions as something that happens over there with people that speak other languages, you know, super Christians who do their thing and live in huts and dress funny, right? The reality is missions happens here. We are all called to the mission of the Great Commission. We're all called to mission in one way or another to make disciples in our community. 
This is what God has called us to. And that brings us to our theme throughout the three weeks, which is in the trenches. In the trenches from selected passages here in 1 Peter. So before we get into the word, let me say a word of prayer. And then we're going to dig into what God has for us today. Heavenly Father, as we seek you in your word, we pray that we would see a God there that is outside of the box, a God that is not just an American God, but a global God. We might speak one or two or three languages. God, you know all of the languages. We might have traveled to a few countries. Lord, you know all people groups. You've created all people. May we see that global, in fact, that cosmic God of the universe. We encounter him this month in a variety of ways. As we open your word in 1 Peter, Lord, teach us the heart of evangelism and witness. Teach us, Lord, what it means to be in the trenches of ministry for you, Lord. So speak through me today, Father, as I preach your word. May we... Apply it to our lives. May it hit our hearts in a new way this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me kind of frame where we want to go throughout this series with an image from one of my favorite animated movies of all time, WALL-E. Some of you know WALL-E. Only two two animated movies have made me cry, Toy Story and WALL-E, okay? Now, I might make you lose respect for me or gain, maybe gain respect, I don't know, but it is what it is, okay? Wally is about a dystopian future uh, where the planet becomes uninhabitable. There's no, no, you know, vegetation can grow there anymore. And so a remnant of the humanity leaves on this, you know, huge, self-sustainable, luxury, like, space yacht, essentially. And so they're floating out there. In the first few generations, uh, you know, people are still focused on trying on trying to get back to, uh, to, to the planet, you know, to find a sustainable way of life. You know, they still have the, the mission at, in, in mind and in heart. But over, over the generations, you know, decades and actually centuries go by, people start to forget the mission. And after all, it's easy to forget because, you know, their life is super comfortable on this big space yacht. I mean, they have everything that they want, comfort and ease. They have all the technology they want, all the entertainment that they want. They're hand-fed, you know, food. AI takes care of everything for them. And so what ends up happening, kind of in a funny way, is over the years, their bodies begin to atrophy. You know, they become these, like, couch potatoes. Like a picture, I'll show you this. This is, this is from the movie. You know, these, like, these, like plump round, you know, small-armed, small-feet kind of people, kind of helpless bots, you know, filling themselves on the entertainment that is in front of them. And to me, this is in many ways a parable of Christian America. The danger, I think, in many ways, and in fact, some, in some ways, the reality is that with with the hundreds of years that we've had in our country of enjoying cultural prominence and a wide acceptance of Christianity, it gets sort of easy to begin to lose sight of the mission that God has given us. 
it gets easy to begin making faith more about our own comforts. Instead of a faith with an important message to share to the world, it becomes, you know, a therapeutic self-help religion. The Bible gets turned into a tool for living the good life and getting blessing from God instead of a discipleship training manual. Prayer gets turned into a, you know, a means of getting more comfort and blessing in our lives, more safety into our lives, instead of what it's primarily used for, which is a means of effective evangelism partnership with God, praying for his power to transform lives. We begin to become more passionate about our politics, our football teams, <laughs> what's trending in fashion, than our faith. And when Christianity drifts from the mission over decades, over centuries, inevitably it atrophies. Inevitably, we become soft and pudgy and weak spiritually. And suddenly we wake up and we find ourselves in an increasingly post-Christian America that in many ways is hostile to the faith, a, an America that we do not recognize or even understand for many of us. Where Christian beliefs that were once culturally accepted and even celebrated are now considered bigoted hate speech. Where teaching the Bible is called gaslighting. Where sharing our faith is thought of, is thought of as offensive. Or as one person told me when I was sharing my faith with them that I was trying to culturally colonize them. Many Christians feel way, like in way over their heads with this whole thing. I don't even know where to start. I'm, they're fearful of opening their mouths, of being marginalized, being canceled, being, you know, feel ill-equipped to speak up for what they believe and why they believe it. Now, I know I'm sounding very negative. I'm sounding a little bit harsh or maybe critical, but actually I'm really hopeful and the reason I'm so hopeful is because I think we're beginning to come into what is, I believe, fertile ground for true Christianity to thrive. Because when Christian nominalism begins to no longer be in vogue, when coming to church no longer gets you like social creds and becomes, in fact, could be a target on your back, when these things begin to happen in a culture true Christianity can begin to thrive again. Because I believe the testing of our faith produces, as the Bible says, endurance. See, faith tested under pressure brings us back to our roots as disciples. Gritty, resilient disciples. And this brings us to our study in 1 Peter. Because Peter is writing to a group of disciples who had no power, a group of disciples that were essentially exiles living in this place, a group of people that had little money, little, very little of no political or social influence. They were literally on the margins of society. And yet, through their gospel resilience, in the next hundred years, 
they transform the very face of the world. It's because of their resilience in their faith, their faith in the trenches. And so over these three weeks, we want to learn how do we move forward? How do we move forward? Well, the way we move forward is by looking backward. We're going to go back because we're given an example of what this looks like. And while we're not there yet as a society, we very well could be in the next decade or more. And so, 1 Peter, let's look at it. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Peter says, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for your hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed by their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than it is for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Now, the focus of this message is going to be primarily on verse 15, but I want to give you some context surrounding this, okay? The command here to be prepared to give an answer for our hope is within the context of the experience of suffering. Do you see that? Now, there's all kinds of suffering in this world. There's physical suffering. You know, talk to two of our pastors who over the last couple of weeks, both of them threw their backs out. Which is why, if you notice, Pastor Hayes is sitting, you know, back here on a chair. <laughs> They're both doing better, so that's good. There's physical suffering. We all deal with physical suffering. Some of us deal with financial suffering. Any of you feel like you're suffering in your stocks and, you know, your investment accounts right now? Maybe some of you are suffering because you made a bad Bitcoin investment. I don't know. There's financial suffering that can happen. That's not the kind of suffering that Peter's talking about. Peter's talking specifically about uniquely Christian suffering because of our demonstration and our declaration of our faith in a hostile culture. Now, we use these two terms a lot, and I want to describe them. Demonstration and declaration. It's kind of a way of talking about our gospel witness in the world, that we demonstrate our faith. Demonstrate meaning that the fruit of our faith is being lived out in public witness through good works. The fruit of our faith is being lived out in public witness through our good works, self-sacrificial love to our neighbor, service of our community, meeting the needs around us. And the reason this is a demonstration of the gospel is because it's showing the very Uh, pursuit of God, showing the grace of God, the mercy, the love, the sacrifice of the gospel, and it gives credence to our declaration. And that's why everywhere in scripture, you will always see demonstration partnered right up alongside a declaration. They're, they're They're not separated from one another. They work together. And this is the demonstration that Peter calls in verse 13 and 17, doing good or doing good works. This is the normal Christian life is to do good works. It's not the exception. Christian faith is others-focused service, not self-focused comfort. 
Also notice in verse 13 that he implies by this rhetorical question that it would be very unusual to be persecuted because of our demonstration of the gospel. And we, I would agree with that in general, right? Likely you're not going to be canceled anytime soon for serving at Sunday breakfast mission, right? Likely you're not going to be persecuted for mowing your elderly neighbor's lawn. You understand what I'm saying? Like, it's, that's a good thing. Most people would agree it's a good thing. And yet Peter also recognized in verse 14 and again in verse 17 that our demonstration of the gospel can, at times, lead to persecution. You say, well, how in the world does that happen? Well, it happens in a society when doing good starts to be considered evil and evil starts to be considered good. Let me give you an example of that from uh, several decades ago. Like Christians in the civil rights movement led by Dr. King here in America, they were advocating for desegregation and for equality of people, of all people, and especially people of color. Now, that good thing, which we would all recognize now in 2023 is a good thing, for many people in America was considered not a good thing, and therefore it was met with persecution. That's an example. Modern day, we have this all over the place. There's many things that the Bible called good that the culture increasingly considers evil. For example, like advocating for the rights of the unborn, sanctity of marriage and the family, the distinction between male and female, the importance of fathers as leaders of their families, encouraging sexual purity until marriage, modesty, honoring our authorities, all good things that today in our world may, may get back persecution, may get back marginalization. And when we do good and when we suffer for it, Peter says, verse 17, it is better if it is God's will, key phrase, to suffer for doing good than it is for doing evil. See, it's not that we go around looking to be martyrs. It's not that we go around looking to be persecuted. Don't do that. That's weird and sadistic. We don't choose suffering, we choose God's will in any given situation. We don't choose suffering, we choose God's will. And if that gets us suffering, if that gets us persecution, then it is what it is. But it's God's will that we're after. Now, we're going to talk more about how to face persecution and forms of persecution in the next couple of weeks. But this is the context in which Peter is telling us to be prepared, not only to demonstrate the gospel, but now, as we're going to talk about, to declare the gospel hope. Let's go to verse 15, our key verse. Always be prepared, Peter says, to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. I want to share with you three keys for effectively sharing the gospel, effectively sharing your faith for the next couple of minutes. Key number one is to share your hope. Focus on sharing your hope. Notice what is required, what, what Peter is commanding us to do is to be prepared to give the reason for our hope, not to be prepared to answer every Bible-stumping question on the internet. You see the difference. It's not be prepared to answer how old the earth is, or, you know, Genesis 1 and 2, talking about literal days or figurative days, how to know if it all those animals on the boat. 
You know, how, the problem of evil and suffering and a good God. Or how about here, this one stumped me this week. I was doing my Bible reading plan this week, Genesis 20. And you get to King Abimelech. And Kim, King, King Abimelech is so attracted to Sarah, Abraham's wife, that he wants to take her into his home and marry her. And I'm scratching my head and I'm going, isn't Sarah like 90? Like, that's like, must have been one fine granny. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> anyway, so it's got, okay, distracted. The point is, <laughs> sorry, I've just distracted all of you and myself. We are not expected, listen, we're not expected to be Bible answer man and answer women. Yes, we need to have a good handle on the scriptures. But what Paul is saying, or excuse me, Peter is saying is be prepared to share your hope. Good luck if you're trying to have every answer to any question that anyone could ask. You will never share your faith if you're waiting for that to happen. And some of you are so frightened that that might happen, like you don't even share your faith because of that. What are we supposed to be prepared for? To share the hope that we have. If you are a Christian, if I gave you five minutes with some elevator music and a sheet of paper, you could fill up a sheet of paper of the reasons for your hope that you have in Jesus. I know you could. That's what we share. And that is a hundred times more important than answering some of those other questions. You know why? Because hope, your hope, is the greatest apologetic to a watching world. You know why? Because most people don't have any. You talk to most people, you get below the layer or two of surface conversation, people don't have hope. At least not a hope that goes beyond the grave. Oh, they might have hope that they get a good job, or they might have hope in their finances. They might have hope in their faith, excuse me, in their, in their, uh, uh, in their, their health, their physical bodies. Maybe they have hope in getting to retirement or in a relationship, but they don't have a hope that goes beyond the grave. Most people don't even know how to answer the question, why do I exist? And you have an answer to those questions. This is the greatest apologetic any of us can have. Peter says, share the hope that you have. Secondly, to be effective witnesses. Share with gentleness and respect. Gentleness, not aggression. Respect, not demeaning tones. Not combatively, not trying to win a verbal jousting match not trying to meet hostility with hostility, not trying to meet snarkiness with snarkiness, not trying to meet name-calling with name-calling. Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Dave Hutton was telling me how he, was, he and, and some others were headed to a ball game, and there was like a street preacher guy on the corner, and he's just shouting at everyone, name-calling, just being really demeaning and belittling to everybody in the name of Jesus. And he was just like, oh my goodness, what does he think he is accomplishing? This is, not, this is not how to win people for Christ. Is that how you want to be won for Christ? What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Do unto others as you would want done to you. Is that how you want to be talked to? What does he say? To those who persecute you, bless them. Your enemies, pray for them. This is effective gospel witness. Thirdly, three keys to effectively sharing your faith. The third one is sharing the truth of the gospel. Of course, this is implied in this word hope because the, 
The hope that Peter is pointing to is not some kind of like hope-so hope. There's a no-so hope. It is a hope that if you go back a chapter or, or two in chapters one and two, you will see he's talking about the living hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. That's our hope. And that's why one of our goals in building resilient disciples over the next few years is that every single one of us would have at least one way that we're comfortable with to be able to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, a way that is simple and accessible and clear for you to be able to share the gospel, which leads me to three circles. All of you should have got one of these when you walked in. Pull it out. We're going to be referencing this in just a moment. If you didn't receive one, we have them out in the lobby. You can grab one after the service. But I want to walk through uh, this uh, three circles uh, sharing tool. It says life on the front, three circles, a life conversation guide. I'm going to take about five minutes to train you in evangelism. All right? So we're going to go into a training session so that you know how to share your faith. What I love about this this tool, there's lots of tools out there, but what I love about this one is it uses very um, culturally accessible language. That is, words and phrases that just about anyone can relate to, never changing the, the truth of the message, just culturally making it accessible for people. So if you turn in uh, to the front, <clears throat> after the, the front page, uh, page one, Let me read it to you. It says this. We live in a broken world, surrounded by broken relationships, uh, broken, uh, excuse me, we live in a broken world, surrounded by broken lives, broken relationships, and broken systems. This brokenness is seen in suffering, violence, poverty, pain, and death around us. Brokenness leads us to search for a way to make life work. I don't care who you are, what background you have, every single person can relate to that. Every single person sees brokenness around them. Every single person sees brokenness in themselves. They might call it something different. They might attribute different reasons of why or how to deal with it. Everyone is on the same page. Yep, brokenness is all over this place. And we seek to figure out ways to live life to correct it. Go to the next page. And here's where our first circle is. By the way, this whole thing you can do on the back of a napkin with a pen. You can do over coffee. Another reason I love it. First circle is God's design. So turn to that page. It says, in contrast to this brokenness, we also see beauty, purpose, evidence of design all around us. The Bible tells us that God originally planned a world that worked perfectly, where everything and everyone fit together in harmony. God made each of us with a purpose to worship him and to walk with him. Again, common ground. Everybody in this world, I don't care what background, sees beauty. They see brokenness, but they also see beauty. They also see things that are inspiring. Everybody is built with a sense of design. We can't help but work with design. And every single one of us knows somewhere deep down that we're made for more than this. Meeting people where they are and beginning to give them answers, backing that up in Scripture. Here's the next page. Go to the next page, and the arrow goes to, uh, gets drawn over, and it says, sin on it. Life doesn't work when we ignore God and his original design for us and our lives. We selfishly insist on doing things our own way. The Bible calls this sin. We all sin and distort the original design. 
The consequence of our sin is separation from God in this life and for all eternity. As the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of, of God, and the wages of sin is death. Go to the next page. Here's our next circle, brokenness. Sin leads to a place of brokenness. We see this all around us in our own lives as well. When we realize life is not working, we begin to look for a way out. We tend to go to many directions, trying different things to figure it out on our own. Brokenness leads to a place of realizing a need for something greater. Here's a great place to insert your own story into it. To say, you know what, I, this is how I was chasing all kinds of ways to fill my emptiness, either through relationships to the, you know, the bottom of a, of a bottle or through my career and workaholism or whatever your story is. And I realized that I was chasing after this life and yet continually being disappointed. Everyone can relate to this struggle. Next page, here's our next circle, the gospel. At this point, we need a remedy, some good news. Because of Jesus' love, God did not leave us in our brokenness. Jesus, God in human flesh, came and lived perfectly according to God's design. Here's the, the guts of the gospel, the bones and the meat of the gospel. Jesus came to rescue us, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He took our sin and shame to the cross, paying the penalty for our sin by his death. Jesus was then raised from the dead to provide the only way to us for us to be rescued and restored to relationship with God. And scriptures there that talk about that reality of the gospel message. Turn to the next page. Simply hearing this good news is not enough. We must admit our sinful brokenness and stop trusting in ourselves. We don't have the power to escape this brokenness on our own. We need to be rescued. We must ask God to forgive us, turning from sin to trust only in Jesus this is what it means to repent and believe. Again, de-Christianizing some of this language and putting it into terms that we can understand. Believing we receive new life through Jesus and God turns our lives in a new direction. Next page. When God restores our relationship to him, we begin to discover meaning and purpose in a broken world. Now we can pursue God's design in all areas of our lives. Even when we fail, we understand God's pathway to be restored. It's the same good news of Jesus. God's spirit empowers us to recover his design and assures us of his presence in this life and of all eternity. And here's where we can begin, again, to bring our own story in, to say, you know, when I came to that place of trusting in Jesus, here's how he began to restore my life. Here's how I began to restore my marriage. Here's how he began to free me from addiction and sin strongholds. Here's how he began to restore a joy in my life or free me from uh, temptations or anxiety or whatever your story is. And then the final couple of pages here talk about what is, what is the response they walk through, the good news, a, a prayer that you can pray uh, to, to understand the gospel and take it in and believe yourself, and then also some next steps, some basic next steps to know how to walk with the Lord. I think this is a great tool. People in this world have all kinds of problems, right? We got problems, and we're looking for solutions. This is a great tool for that conversation. Now, here's a challenge I want to give every single one of us, 
If you call Brandywine your church home, I want to challenge you to use these, this three circles guide to share your faith with at least one person between now and Easter. Use a three-circle guide to share your faith with just one person, at least one person, between now and Easter. That doesn't sound that difficult. We can do that, right? That's not that hard to do. Now, don't be like, okay, I've, I've figured it out. I'll check this off this afternoon. I'm going to sit my kids down, and I'm going to force them to hear this story. No, no, no. Yes, that's good. Practice with your kids. Practice with your family, your spouse, your friends. Fine. Your small group. But go out and actually do it with someone that you don't know is already a believer, all right? Doesn't have it, maybe don't have, doesn't have a church background. Go and share the gospel. You can go on the website as well, on, and it's all in this, this guide, and get, uh, get more training, more stories. We're going to be walking and using this over the next couple of years, so we want to put this in your hands. Now, you might say, Nate, man, I don't know about all this sharing my faith stuff. Like, what if someone rejects me? What if someone cuts me off or makes fun of me? Do you know how Peter encouraged this first century church to continue on the mission of Jesus? He encouraged them, as we see in verse 18, by pointing them back to their leader and their savior, Jesus Christ. What does he say, verse 18? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He's with you in your suffering. He knows what it's like to suffer. And good, the ultimate good came from it. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. So we can face suffering as well. And this leads us right to to our time of the Lord's Supper of communion. When you came in, you should have also received a communion cup. I want to encourage you to grab that and pull that out. If you're watching online, you can get your elements out so you can participate with us here. If you don't have one, ushers are going to come around. Just keep your hand up. Ushers will come around. There's some in the balcony. Ushers will come around, and we'll make sure we get you a little communion kit. I want you to take a few minutes right now and just commune with the Lord. Talk to him about your fears around evangelism and sharing your faith. Talk to him about what you're worried about. Maybe confess to him. Say, you know what? I've been like soft and pudgy and atrophied spiritually, and I've been really ineffective gospel witness. Lord, forgive me for that, right? Still some in the balcony. Take your time to confess that. It's okay. Listen, he knows where you're at, and he loves you anyway. He will meet you where you are, and the reason we know that is because of the entire communion story, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Take some time. Take some time right now and confess that before the Lord.